churches can do a lot to try to help stabilize the Brazilian political system. At the same time, of course, they've also been involved in movements against LGBT people and fomenting intolerance. And then they were strongly involved in supporting Jair Bolsonaro, who is a menace to Brazilian democracy. are listening to In Pursuit of Development with Dan Bannock. In a splendid book titled Religion and Brazilian Democracy, Mobilizing the People of God, my guest this week, Amy Erica Smith, examines the causes and consequences of Brazil's so-called culture wars that as Brazilian democracy faces a crisis of legitimacy, political divisions among Catholic, evangelical, and non-religious citizens have grown. How then have these culture wars affected Brazil's democracy? And does religious politics either threaten or help to shore up a democracy now facing grave challenges to its legitimacy? Amy Erica argues that the answers to these questions lie not in political parties, but in clergy that interacts with and sometimes leads congregants and politicians. Amy Erica Smith is an associate professor of political science, as well as a liberal arts and sciences dean's professor at Iowa State University. Her research examines how ordinary people understand and engage in politics. Although Amy Erica studies democratic and authoritarian regimes globally, her primary expertise is in Latin America and particularly Brazil. Amy Erica and I began our conversation by discussing how the world currently views Brazil, the causes of increased societal polarization, the role of the military, and how we should understand the rise of Bolsonaro, the leader. We thereafter discussed the importance of religion in Brazilian society, the issues that dominate the country's culture wars, how Brazil's culture wars differ from those taking place in other parts of the world, and how culture wars in Brazil are shaping the country's democracy. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Great to have you on the show, Amy Erica. Welcome. Well, thank you, Dan. I'm so delighted to be here and talking with you. Let's begin, Amy Erica, by discussing how Brazil is viewed by the rest of the world. If we turn back the clock to, say, a decade ago, there was considerable attention then, I believe, on the BRICS group of countries, which Brazil was a part of. And there was widespread praise for all kinds of innovative social protection programs, such as the cash transfer program known as Bolsa Familia, and how such programs were helping in the fight against poverty. Brazil was in many ways viewed as assuming this major role in international affairs. It was, you know, engaging with countries on the African continent. And so there was this positive narrative. And around that time, I had the pleasure of visiting Rio 
the most beautiful city in the world, in my view. <laughs> I was giving, you know, these talks at the Catholic University, the Federal University of Rio. And I was somewhat taken aback that my students and colleagues did not appear to share this glowing description of their country that I was providing. And very few people felt that this was an accurate description of reality. They felt that Brazil was struggling. This, and, and this response within Brazil really surprised me. Now, of course, it would be fair to say that Brazil, a decade later, has been in the news for all the wrong reasons, including, some would say, a botched response to COVID, the incompetence of the Bolsonaro administration to respond properly to this crisis, its reluctance to do more for the citizens to cope with the pandemic. So the country's international reputation appears to have taken a beating. Now, you've studied Brazil for many years, Amy Erica. What are your thoughts on how Brazil is viewed, say, in the United States now or elsewhere at this moment of time? First of all, I want to say you're right, that Rio is also, in my opinion, at least in my in my limited experience, <laughs> the most beautiful the most beautiful city I have seen. It is extraordinary. It it's is. Mountains in the midst of, of the city in this way that, you know, you can climb a mountain and gorgeous vistas from any mountain you climb. And yeah, it's just, you know, city hugging the coastline. It's, it's absolutely spectacular. While there is a kind of a, a, a degradation of the architecture in many places, at the same time, it's this... Um, it's really, it's, it's lovely, beautiful, crumbling, <laughs> crumbling buildings in some cases, but there's a kind of picturesque beauty to it that I haven't seen anywhere else. Um, and yes, a decade ago, uh, Brazil, well, let, let's put us back 11, or 11 years ago to uh, Lula's presidency. Barack Obama once called him the most famous politician or the, the most popular politician in the world. And, and he was really popular on the international stage. He was extraordinarily good at dealing with international issues. And he had a vision of promoting this idea of Brazil as an up and coming country of the future whose time had come in, in the international arena. So that is a huge, huge change that we are seeing today. So today, the country, first of all, I think one way that the country has been seen is now seen in the international arena is as having attempted to form an alliance with Donald Trump. So many members of the current president, Jair Bolsonaro's administration, Bolsonaro has been president since uh, January 1st of 2019. And many members of Jair Bolsonaro's administration are as Brazilians would say, uh, Trumpistas. Um, <laughs> they, are, they are huge fans, uh, personal fans of Donald Trump. You know, make America great again, hat wearing uh, fans of Donald Trump. The kinds of people who would go to Washington, D.C. and, you know, act like American tourists who are fans of Donald Trump. Um, actually, his uh, former, Bolsonaro's former foreign minister rose in in his national profile and image, he had been a like a, a mi very minor ambassador who was not well recognized by his peers. But he first caught the attention of right wing political actors when he published an article about how Donald Trump would save Western civilization. So, so the Bolsonaro administration is perceived, first of all, as having attempted to form an alliance with Donald Trump. Uh, I say attempted because 
it was always it was never perfect, totally remunerated from Trump's side. Trump, of course, uh, didn't mind the adulation, (laughs) but um, but he never reciprocated in the ways that Bolsonaro was hoping for. For instance, one major goal of the Bolsonaro administration in a rather pragmatic and normal politics kind of sense has been hoping to get access to, to be admitted to the OECD. And he was really trying to get Donald Trump to push this agenda. It was just not a priority for Trump. Um, you know, there were some nice things that were said, but this was not an issue that Trump was, re- was willing to take on. So issues like that, it was always something of a one-sided alliance. Bolsonaro also, to the extent that it was possible for him to campaign for Trump, he campaigned for Trump. And so this raised lots of concerns within the country, within Brazil, about what would happen when when Biden was elected. It does not seem at the moment to have substantially affected relations, though other aspects of, of Bolsonaro's administration. So do you think the kind of negative perception that many countries around the world had on the Trump presidency that rubbed off a bit also on Bolsonaro's presidency? Yes, I would say definitely uh, that his attempt to associate himself with Trump certainly did not help him. Bolsonaro has been proud to call himself <laughs> the Brazilian Trump. Yes, he has. He thinks of this. He, he thinks of this as a, a compliment, and of course, <laughs> this doesn't go over well in the international sphere. The number of newspaper and magazine headlines that one can find if you Google "Trump of the Tropics." that referred to Jair Bolsonaro is really staggering. I'm not sure how, how many we would find if we Googled it right now, but there, <laughs> you will find this all over the news, Bolsonaro referred to as the Trump of the tropics. And that certainly has not helped his international reputation. But I would say the thing that most hurts him in the international sphere is his actual policies, his policy positions. And more than anything else, we're talking about the environment. He is from a, an older traditional way of thinking about Brazilian's territory, Brazil's territory, that comes in part out of uh, his background in the military, that thinks of um, Brazil's territory as needing to be quote unquote integrated, which is a buzzword in the Brazilian context for basically bulldozing the Amazon. So the Amazon rainforest is you know, it's an extraordinarily large territory that has lots of human beings living there, but could have a lot more. It's a source of tremendous mineral and water and lumber wealth, if you think of it in those terms. And so there is a sector, a really important and influential sector of Brazilian politics that and the military that thinks of the Amazon as needing to be better pulled into national development. And he is wholly a proponent of that. So what this also means, the subtext of this is that the Indians or the indigenous have to go. And so, I mean, this this gets into approaching genocide. He would not say it's genocide. His his expression would be the Indians need to be integrated. Um, And... That means uh, getting them off their land, getting them into cities, and making them participate in modern economies so that 
the resources on their land can be exploited. So there has been obviously a lot of attention, as you know, Amy, Erica, and you've written about it in a wonderful article for the Journal of Democracy, trying to better understand how Bolsonaro actually became the leader that he is now, how on earth he was actually elected, because as you've written about and others have too, that he has a long history of this aggressive, immature behavior. And sometimes, you know, even though he's been described as being excessively ambitious, he's also been reported for insubordination during his time in the military. And I was fascinated with what you just said about, you know, the role of the military. And you were telling me before we started the recording that his relationship with the military is evolving. Can you say a bit more about how and in what ways is it evolving? And I'm sure that is only going to result in more political tension, right? Right. Okay. So I'm going to really quickly talk about his history, which is fascinating and people don't talk about it enough in international politics or in international spheres. So Bolsonaro's history, he comes out of the military. Uh, If you read a one-line bio of him, it will often say something like he's a former army captain. What they won't tell you (laughs) is that he was nearly expelled from the military and eventually allowed to resign on the condition that he, or he, he, he was forgiven, he was, they, they dropped charges against him on the condition that he resigned. Because he was indicted for something, right? Right. So shortly after the transition to the democracy in the mid-1980s, he had been really unhappy with upper management in the army or in the, mili- in the, the, the armed forces in general. There was, it was a period of hyperinflation. He was really upset about salaries. So he started writing popular press op-eds, basically, letters to the editor complaining about the salary, which the military didn't take kindly to. It was perceived as insubordination for him to write these public letters complaining. Uh, So he received some minor reprimands for that, uh, which only (laughs) led him to intensify his campaign against the upper administration in the military. So the event that really got him in trouble was an effort, an apparent effort to set off some bombs in some bathrooms and latrines and and barracks at an army base. He and his co-plotter said that they didn't really intend to hurt anybody. They were just going to try to scare some upper administration so they would take their concerns more seriously. Of course, the army didn't take this very well. And yeah, this, of course, led to um, an investigation and a trial. It turns out there were lots of low-ranking members of of the military, both enlisted men and officers, who actually agreed with him, though. And he was so popular, they got so many letters in support of Bolsonaro, that they ended up deciding to let him off on a technicality, saying they couldn't confirmed that the handwriting on the plans was his. Wow. Yeah. So they, they said that they couldn't prove the handwriting was his, even though, you know, there was a reporter attesting that she had received <laughs> the a plot directly from him. Um, so they couldn't prove it. And they let him off on the condition that he resigned. So he resigned in the late 1980s and entered politics. And it turns out that while setting off a bomb on an army base might not be a good way to advance within the military, (laughs) it it will endear you to some voters. 
And so he gets elected to city council in Rio with, he has always had this, like the hardcore Bolsonarista base has always been basically low-ranking members of security forces, police officers, low-ranking military. This has been his sort of natural home in politics. And he was elected to city council, spent some time on city council, eventually elected as a legislator, and then spent decades in the legislature. So that's his story of origin, um, is coming out of the military. So so fast forward to his presidency. He has believed that the military is his natural political base, which is a problem in a country where the military left power after a uh, mostly unsuccessful, in the end disastrous, dictatorship of 21 years in 1985. Indeed. And also the country has a democratic constitution uh, that puts in all sorts of checks between civilian and life and civilian politics and the military. For instance, the military, the military is very explicitly nonpartisan in the Brazil, in Brazil's constitution. Military officers and, and, and actually enlisted men are not supposed to be involved in political demonstrations. He has tried to incorporate military officers into his administration. He has relied extensively on them, but military norms say that you have to take a leave of absence from the military in terms of, in order to be able to to enter his administration. Uh, So he has, in some cases, actually defied those military norms. Most famously, his health minister, which he had for about a year during the COVID pandemic, ran ran his pandemic response in a disastrous fashion. But he he appointed a military man to run his pandemic response. And he and uh, this military general refused to have the general take a leave of absence, move into the reserves. And the military tolerated it. So all of this leads to current standoffs with the military. This guy, so the general to whom I'm referring is named uh, General Eduardo Pazuelo. And this general is, well, first of all, he's widely reviled in Brazil because his COVID response was disastrous. He was uh, Minister of Health for about 10 months, first in an interim capacity, and then finally in a, he was eventually actually appointed to the position. Uh, This was after Bolsonaro had run off to other ministers of health who had clashed with him over his COVID denialism. So uh, anyway, this guy, Eduardo Pazuelo, comes in in May or early June, I can't remember the date, I don't have it in front of me, but um, of 2020 as an interim minister of health after Bolsonaro has run off to others, and then ultimately holds the position when he's confirmed until March of 2020 when he has run out in disgrace because he has overseen just an awful, a disastrous response to COVID. So anyway, Pazuelo is obviously a hardcore Bolsonarista, has Bolsonaro's back completely, and Bolsonaro has his back completely. So Pazuelo recently, as an active duty general, because again, he has never taken a leave of absence that everybody believes he should take, he recently, as an active duty general, participated in a political rally, uh, a motorcycle rally, in fact. It was bunches of motor uh, of military men or, or and civilians on motorcycles. So he participated in a military rally with Bolsonaro as an active duty general and gave a speech about 
you know, basically supporting Bolsonaro at this rally, which has led to widespread condemnation in the military. This is a very clear violation of what are apparently really explicit military regulations of prohibiting this kind of behavior and is perceived by all of the highest ranking officers in the military as a huge breach of his responsibilities as an active duty general. So his commander is the new defense minister who is, again, he's a military man. This is an unusual thing uh, in Brazilian politics to have a military officer made a defense minister, but this has been happening under Bolsonaro. His commander absolutely 100% believes that he needs to be reprimanded. The options are verbal reprimand, written reprimand, or uh, at the worst, he could be jailed. Under other circumstances, it's possible that he would be subject to a jail sentence, but given his connection with the Bolsonaro administration, nobody's angling for uh, 30 days in jail. The punishment that the upper echelons of the military seems to have agreed on is that he needs a written reprimand, which would be considered dishonorable. So Bolsonaro has taken a strong stance. This, this is a slow-moving crisis or a somewhat slow-moving crisis where the, the event in question happened about a week and a half ago. And for the first week or so, it wasn't clear how the, this brinksmanship between the military and Bolsonaro was going to work. But Bolsonaro has now taken a clear stance that he opposes any punishment of this active duty general Eduardo Pazuelo for his behavior. So now, this week, we are facing a big crisis in the military where the defense minister has a choice of punish Pazuelo and get fired from his job or don't punish Pazuelo and lose all credibility within the upper ranks of the military and open the military up to other military men participating in the same kind of rallies which the military, the upper ranks of the military, apparently believe that this would be lead to quote-unquote crisis or chaos in the military. Uh, there's very strong resistance to the notion that lower-ranking military officers could part possibly participate in rallies, in political rallies. So we have, I mean, in some sense, a game of chicken where Bolsonaro is daring his defense minister to implement this punishment. If he's able to dismiss his defense minister, then he could replace the defense minister with somebody who's more politically amenable to his, um, his way of thinking about the role of the military. And we can't talk about this without talking about this is, this is an ongoing crisis in the military, which has been evolving since late March, because uh, back in late March, for relatively similar reasons that I'm not going to go into for the sake, for the sake of time, for, for relatively similar reasons, back in late March, Bolsonaro ended up dismissing his defense minister, a previous defense minister, and then the three heads of the, the, the heads of all three military branches decided when the defense minister was fired, uh, they collectively decided to tender their resignation to which Bolsonaro replied, resignation not accepted, I fire you. <laughs> yeah, so, so we've got um, this long running crisis with the military where the military was resisting Bolsonaro politicizing them, that is the upper ranks of the military, 
while his political base is really at the base of the military. Um, so he continues. I mean, this is effectively, you can think of this as a continuation of his efforts um, back in the mid-1980s to encourage insubordination within the military. And it's extraordinary. We've reached this place. So it seems to me that, you know, there was this political chaos following the June, was it 2013 protests, you know, around all of these large infrastructure projects before the Soccer World Cup and all those corruption scandals, the impeachment proceedings against the then president and then her deputy becoming the president. I thought it was like a soap opera, you know, what happened then. And what you describe now appears to be a bit of, you know, what has happened since then. So there was this perfect storm that created, you know, or facilitated the rise of Bolsonaro. And then he came in and he's creating another storm, perhaps in the hope of consolidating power and being reelected despite that botched response. And and you and I can continue talking about this, but I'd also very much like to talk about your excellent book, Religion and Brazilian Democracy, Mobilizing the People of God, Amy Erica. I enjoyed reading that superb book and One of my first thoughts when I began reading your book was, again, of course, the city that we both think is one of the most beautiful in the world, Rio. And I, you know, fondly remember seeing, visiting, you know, Christ the Redeemer statue in Rio, which just overlooks the city, blesses the city's inhabitants. And I recently, of course, read about this new statue of Christ the Protector (laughs) that is being built in Encantado in southern Brazil, which will apparently be even taller and perhaps even more famous, I don't know, than the Redeemer statue in Rio. But during, during that visit and also since then, I've often wondered the relationship that Brazilian society has to religion. And I I wonder about that, particularly because, you know, on the one hand, the country is supposedly secular with lifestyles that are very liberal in terms of liberal values. But as you write in the book, religious groups actually exercise considerable influence in society. So could you help us better understand that relationship? How does religion affect and influence daily life in Brazil? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you for asking me that. Um, And I love the hook of talking about the Christ the Redeemer statue. I think it embodies, literally embodies, so much of the the relationship between religion and politics historically in Brazil and religion and society more broadly. So the Christ the Redeemer statue was originally created by a religious order in the early part of the 20th century and was initially entirely, or not a religious order, sorry, a religious religious society, a religious group, um, a religious civil society group, and was initially entirely private. But then, you know, of course, it became basically the international symbol of Brazil, uh, not to mention the city of, of the city of Rio de Janeiro. So today it's administered in this really complex and sometimes contentious public-private partnership between the city and uh, this religious uh, society that continues to have ownership over the Christ the Redeemer, but doesn't have the capacity to handle, you know, millions and millions of tourists a year. Though, of course, they've gotten rich from doing this. So so we have this this public-private partnership that's administering the thing. 
And in some diffuse, broader sense, beyond any of the administrative issues, there's a kind, there's a way in which the Christ the Redeemer statue has become this international symbol of Brazil. This is, this is what people think of that, and you know, Christ the Redeemer and the Brazilian flag are the images that are most strongly associated with Brazil in the international arena and for Brazilians. Yet another symbol of Brazil within Brazil that is not so famous internationally is the patron saint of Brazil. So we have a, a country where overtly Catholic images become the, the symbol of the entire country. Brazil is a highly religious country with really high levels of church attendance, high levels of belief in God, any kind of survey measure you use to assess people's levels of religiosity, Brazil is, is quite high, ranks quite high on them. Uh, certainly, as everywhere in the world, secularism or lack of religion is increasing, but it's still an overwhelmingly religious country where religion permeates daily life and is just a part of the fabric of society. So this is a long-standing element of the country, of society, of national image, and it has been has become somewhat less consensual at the same time over the past, I don't know, we could say 50 years or so, as evangelicalism has grown. So evangelicalism, while well, I said that, you know, lack of non-religion, Lack, lack of religious identification has been growing quite slowly in Brazil, uh, slower than it has been growing in most of the West, or most of the wealthy uh, countries of the West. But identification with evangelicalism has been growing much faster. So in 1970, it was evangelicalism was maybe about 5% of the population. Today, it's probably around a third of the population. Brazil hasn't had its 2020 census, which was in part a result of the pandemic, and then it would have been rescheduled for 2021. But now there's a budget crisis, and the Bolsonaro administration appears not interested in conducting the census, which is a problem. But in any case, so we don't have new census numbers. Religion is asked about in the Brazilian census, but demographers uh, would say that it's, a, it's right around a third, maybe 32% of the population. Anyway, so we've had this, you know, this huge increase in self-identification with evangelicalism and a concomitant decrease in identification with Catholicism. It's Catholicism is going to become a minority religious identification sometime this decade. Yeah, so, so we've got a long-term secular tendency toward reduced identification with Catholicism and increased identification with, with evangelicalism. And so this creates uh, tension where, you know, something like the Christ the Redeemer statue is a symbol of Brazil, but not a consensual one for evangelicals who resent it as a Catholic image. In the book, Amy Erica, you tackle so-called culture wars and how they are shaping Brazilian democracy. And you identify, or at least I, I believe, if I'm not wrong, that there are just a handful of issues that appear to dominate the country's culture wars, right? So it is right. gender and sexuality are perhaps the most prominent. So 
I'm wondering what then are the agreements and the disagreements in these culture wars and who or what is driving the country's culture wars? Are we talking about you know, political parties? Are we talking about civil society organizations? Are there also external actors involved? Who is behind these wars? Yeah, you're right. So the Brazilian society has been the the host, the site, uh, over the past couple of decades to an increasingly fierce, contentious, and pervasive set of battles over the role of religion in society, what we call, what many people call moral values issues, though I don't particularly like that term, things like what what should be the roles of churches, um, but especially battles over sexuality politics. In places like the United States and Europe, battles over sexuality politics have most prominently been associated with battles over abortion. In the Brazilian case, however, we don't see so many battles over abortion, in part because abortion is legal in a minor, in a small number of contexts. Uh, it's only legal in the cases of rape and incest and uh, danger to the mother's life. And most Brazilians seem to be okay with that legal status quo. There, there are some evangelicals and Catholics who want to make it entirely 100% illegal, there are very few people who want to legalize it more fully of any religious affiliation, even the non-religious. Most non-religious people are okay with the, the, the current environment. So abortion has not been a site of huge social conflict. However, what has been a, a source of extraordinary conflict is a battle over sexuality, the idea of gender, transgender rights, et cetera. And and I would say not only the rights, but even an understanding of what all of these terms mean. What is gender? Is gender uh, a a quote unquote ideology? Is it a social construct? Uh, How do we understand the notions of male and female in the current society? So so these are the most prominent, pervasive, deeply reaching issues that cleave Brazilian society. Churches also fight among themselves, and to some extent their members fight among themselves, over what the rights and roles of churches should be. So evangelical churches um, have often seen themselves as sort of the David to the church's Goliath, to the, that is the Catholic church's Goliath, and you know, sort of an upstart outsider who has to fight uh, to get just basic fairness and justice for themselves. Uh, And this is, you know, the Catholic Church was a religious monopolist for a long time. And even even after secularism was established in the Brazilian constitution, that is official legal separation of Catholic Church and state, the Catholic Church continued to have all kinds of social and political privileges, such as, you know, are embodied in the Christ the Redeemer statue. So it's, to some extent, with good reason, that evangelical churches perceive themselves as this David to the Catholic Church's Goliath. So we've got these battles over churches' rights and responsibilities and a stronger, deeper felt, more pervasive cleavage is over notions of gender and sexuality. And of course, you argue that 
even though in many other, say, wealthy established democracies, a party-centric approach would have mm-hmm. great appeal, it does not explain Brazil's culture wars, right? right. And, and, I, and I think it is really interesting to explore why culture wars have arisen in some democracies, but not in others. And, you know, I've mentioned this to you before about how, you know, my own experience, I study Malawi, and there I was witness to an extremely polarized discourse between external actors and local politicians right. on the issue of homosexuality. In most of these societies, you could have political parties, religious activists, elites, all of them shaping the policy debates. And in Malawi, as in Uganda, you know, as you're aware, I think you also write about in the book, there is often this tension between those who wish to advocate for the rights of gay people and then those who use religion and culture. Right. as explanations for not giving them these rights. So, And right. Uganda is a great example of where they introduced legislation for a gay death penalty. So how are things different in Brazil from some of these other culture wars in other contexts? And I'm sure Brazil is extremely different from, say, the culture wars taking place in your own country, the United States, right? Right. So that's... Contrasting Brazil with Malawi and Uganda is really great and instructive comparison. So the difference between Brazil and Malawi and Uganda is that there are actually a lot of people in Brazil who support gay rights. It's not clear what percentage, what the percentage is, uh, but it's, you know, we can say maybe approximately half the population is moderately supportive of gay rights, maybe not as liberal as the most liberal people are in wealthy Western countries, but moderately supportive. And so we get a culture war precisely because this is contested in the Brazilian context. So who's contesting it? You asked me that earlier and I didn't answer the question, I realized. The answer is it starts at churches, which are really the lowest instance of, not lowest, in terms of hierarchy, not low in terms of moral value, but Churches are maybe the most pervasive civil society organization in Brazil, or they are certainly the most pervasive civil society organization in Brazil. More people participate in church than participate in any other form of civic life in Brazil. So we have churches that have lots and lots of contact with people and many religious leaders who are vehemently opposed to what has come to be known as gender ideology, which is a term that comes out of Catholic uh, movements in the 80s and 90s, but has now been adopted by Brazilian evangelicals and Latin American evangelicals in general to sort of encapsulate their resistance to changes in norms and views and policies with respect to gender and sexuality. Yeah, so, so clergy are the ones, and, and, and members in discussion within churches are the ones who are creating this vehement opposition to changes in social norms on gender and sexuality. And then this has spillover effects into the broader society. And at the same time, as I said, there are there are a lot of people who are supportive of gay rights in Brazil. That's how you get the culture wars. It's because because there are many people who want to institutionalize 
rights such as same-sex marriage. And in fact, the um, Brazilian Supreme Court has accepted, uh, has legalized uh, same-sex marriage in a pair of decisions in 2011 and 2013, which first admitted the possibility and then created the sort of the institutional infrastructure, or required the creation of institutional infrastructure for same-sex marriage. Yeah, so, so one difference between what's happening in Brazil and what has happened in places like Malawi and Uganda is that you, in Malawi and Uganda, gay rights has been pushed almost entirely, not 100%, but largely been pushed as an agenda by international groups, organizations such as the UN, development entities um, who have said, you know, <laughs> you can't receive funding if you're going to execute gay people. Yeah, and uh, foreign aid was, you know, used sometimes as a tool to get some of the officials mm -hmm. on board with this agenda. Right. What, it didn't work in Uganda. Right. So in the Brazilian case, that wasn't necessary because we have a Supreme Court, which is which is willing to legalize a same-sex marriage. And again, we're talking about same-sex marriage, not just not executing homosexuals. And um, there have also been international movements that have pushed an anti-gay rights agenda, especially among some extremely conservative, perceived in the wealthy Western countries as marginal fringe actors that are basically religious movements, uh, evangelical fundamentalist religious movements, which have been pushing an anti-gay rights agenda and even pushing things like an execute the gays kind of agenda in some African countries. But we don't find the prominence of those kind of movements in Brazil. In Brazil, really, these culture wars have been driven by local clergy and their political allies, who they, they have managed to get many political allies uh, through election of uh, religious conservatives into office, and then progressive actors and progressive social movements who have been vibrant in Brazilian society. I've been talking about the conservative side, but the on the liberal side, we find extraordinary diversity and, and vibrancy in pro-LGBT progressive movements as well. The final set of issues has to do with the relationship between religion and support for democracy. Because on the one hand, of course, you know, you could say that the Brazilian clergy has been extremely activistic mm -hmm. on some of these issues and is encouraging perhaps the congregants to get involved in politics. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering why, you know, what could be the incentives? Obviously, one obvious incentive is, I suppose, as in most other countries, the, the religious groups, the church once, you know, I don't know, higher membership, larger numbers of people mm -hmm. in the congregation. Another incentive could be getting funding for their activities. Mm -hmm. But I would imagine, Amy Erica, there's also considerable competition among religious groups for membership and funding, right? So I'm just wondering if that is correct, how does this all play out in relation to, you know, religious groups and their support for democracy and on and different different parties in uh, Brazilian democracy? Yeah, this is a great question, Dan. And this was one of the underlying questions that motivated me in writing the book was what is all the impact of all of this? So I think we can look at different aspects of democracy, whether we're thinking about pluralist democracy or deliberative democracy or sort of levels of democratic tolerance. So 
in it's a sense of pluralist democracy, I would say that religious politicking in Brazil has increased the vibrancy, the representativeness, the stability of electoral and sort of competitive pluralist politics in the Brazilian context. Because one of the things churches do is give people who historically didn't have much representation in politics a way of getting involved in their local political systems. So historically, evangelicals in Brazil were among the lower classes. Today, this is not so much the case, but there's still a sense in which Brazilian evangelicals are a little bit excluded from society. You know, we've got a country where <laughs> where the national symbols are uh, Catholic, right? And actually, you know, evangelicals are underrepresented in electoral office. If you hear Brazilians, uh, Brazilians pundits and scholars talk about it, very rarely will somebody say Brazilians are underrepresented, or sorry, evangelicals are underrepresented in electoral office in Brazil. But it is absolutely the case. In every country in Latin America, evangelicals are underrepresented in elective office. And when evangelicals do decide to run, it's treated as a um, an extraordinary thing that needs to be talked about and discussed and analyzed endlessly, and uh, in some cases treated with a little bit of underlying horror that evangelicals would choose to do this. But the truth is, you know, for a religious group that is steadily growing in demographic power, it's probably democratically a good thing that this group has representation in elected office. Otherwise, they would be excluded from the political system. Yeah, so, so churches help evangelicals get representation. They also help evangelicals see the value in electoral democracy. I have, you know, anecdotes, qualitative evidence from fieldwork in churches where I have, for instance, the day after a disappointing electoral victory in a Baptist church I was attending or, you know, participating in. So the day after they had lost a campaign that they had really been hoping for, the pastor stands up and basically gives a lecture about how, you know, we're going to rise up and we're going to fight again. You lose one fight. You didn't lose the war. We're just going to keep going. Wow. <laughs> and I mean, he sounds like a party leader rallying his base to, you know, to, to have courage and to come back again for the next fight. Uh, and, you know, he since he doesn't quite say it in these words, but what he's basically saying is this is just how democracy works and we're just going to, you know, keep going. You lose one contest, you don't lose everything. And he connects this to uh, religious topics. He says that what matters most is that you are all candidates to the kingdom of God, which may sound a wow. little cheesy, but it's, um, you know, it's a way of reframing an electoral loss in terms of these are our fundamental values and we're going to keep going. So, so churches can do a lot to try to help stabilize the Brazilian political system. At the same time, of course, you know, they've also been involved in movements against LGBT people and fomenting intolerance. And then they were strongly involved in supporting Jair Bolsonaro, who is a menace to Brazilian democracy. So we've got these, you know, <laughs> complex conflicting impacts on Brazilian democracy. Ultimately, the, the thing that makes me most hopeful about evangelical churches and the role of religion in Brazilian democracy, despite all of the problems, 
is that churches in Brazil are not entirely enmeshed in their own cultures separate from the larger society. So they have access to the same media sources. They generally, while there is some differentiation in the media sources, generally evangelicals, you know, pay attention to the same news sources that other Brazilians pay attention to. They're, they're part of families that are mixed. You know, there's frequent switching in and out of uh, evangelicalism and Catholicism and among churches. And so this, this means that evangelicals are not entirely closed off from the rest of society and from the information that the rest of society gets. And in a concrete sense, what this means is that they get information about, say, uh, Bolsonaro's failures in office, for instance, in managing the COVID-19 pandemic. So we have seen support for Bolsonaro rise and fall among evangelicals in the same way that it has risen and fallen among the rest of the population. They're not insulated from the rest of the population. And what this means is that evangelicals are a group that is up for grabs in the Brazilian political environment. They are highly sensitive to attacks against candidates on the basis of issues like gender and sexuality. But they also will pay attention to other information beyond things like gender and sexuality. I'm reading an interesting paper right now by a student who argues that, for instance, recipients of conditional cash transfer programs who are evangelical are less sensitive to, to information, to other kinds of appeals, for instance, about sexuality. In other words, it's not an entirely closed off population. I have to ask you one final question, mm -hmm. Amy Erica. We started by discussing Bolsonaro, and we also, I propose, end by discussing yeah. <laughs> Bolsonaro. As you're aware, this really fantastic book that Steve Levitsky right. and Daniel Ziplatt wrote, How Democracies Die, they write of these violent and spectacular military takeovers and other forms of coercion mm -hmm. that can happen, but also less dramatic and yet equally destructive forms when democracies die at the hands of elected leaders. And so, you know, there's this idea, and then they write about this, how leaders can dismantle democracy in so-called barely visible steps. Yeah. And some of these attempts to subvert democracy may even be legal, mm -hmm. uh, approved by the legislature and the judiciary is involved. So the point here is that democracies may erode very slowly, but they will erode. And so Levitsky and Ziplat, they propose that we should worry when politicians reject in words and action the democratic rules of the game, they deny the legitimacy of opponents, they may tolerate or encourage violence, mm -hmm. they may show willingness to curtail the civil liberties of opponents, including media. So my final question, if you can re reflect briefly, Amy Erica, is Bolsonaro ticking off all of these boxes that Levitsky and Ziplat have identified? Is he committed to democracy or is he dismantling democracy in Brazil? I'm going to push back a little bit against that question, actually. So I would say, yes, he ticks off all four boxes that Levitsky and Ziplat identified. Yeah, so he is absolutely what they identify as a would-be authoritarian leader. And this is why when, uh, during the 
2018 campaign in which Bolsonaro was ultimately elected in the second round, Levitsky, Steve Levitsky, was prominent in the international and Brazilian media in saying, hey, look, there's this dude who's running for office in your country who ticks off all four boxes for a potential authoritarian leader. This is really dangerous for your democracy. Take this into account, please. So Levinsky would completely agree that that, uh, Bolsonaro matches the description of an authoritarian leader based on his prior behavior. And certainly as he's continued in office, he continues to match those four criteria of an authoritarian leader. Where I would say we haven't seen things play out as I think we feared, both Steve Levitsky and I, is that we have not seen Bolsonaro be very successful in eroding democracy. The reason is that the system is pushing back. So this famously fragmented party system in Brazil, the same one that leads to all sorts of evangelical churches competing against each other in this cacophony of voices who often can't agree, this same system that people have often decried as being totally unmanageable has also made it very, very hard for Bolsonaro to to consolidate power. Uh, So even leaders on the center-right and on the right, the far-right, are not totally in his camp. They're often fighting with him. You know, Bolsonaro is not a very agreeable person. I think we could say that would be a euphemism. He is, a, he is a rather disagreeable person in many ways. And so he fights with the leaders of all of these many, many micro and nano parties in Brazil. So, for instance, he abandoned the Social Liberal Party, which was a, a really small party, a formerly very small party on which he was elected in 2018. Within the first six months in office, he had gotten upset at the leaders of the party and left the party. He initially was going to form his own party, which he called Alliance for Brazil. He proved unable to create his own party. He just could not manage the administrative and the mobilizational tasks that could uh, that were necessary to to create his own party. And that actually is a story that's waiting to be a, a really great article to be written about that about how he failed. So eventually, now he wants to rejoin some party of the right. And he can't find a party that will take him on. (laughs) So this is the incumbent president of Brazil is currently partyless and at this moment cannot find a party that will allow him to run on its on its banner in the 2022 presidential election, which is basically around the corner in a in a year. All of this is going to be shored up and he cannot find a party right now because he's fighting with the leaders of all of these different parties. So ultimately, this is leading to a situation where Bolsonaro, I think in part because of problems with his own personality and his disagreeableness, has not been able to do the things that are necessary to erode democracy. And I think the examples that we were talking about in the, in the, in the beginning of this interview with the military are just another case in point where the military is just not interested in fully climbing on board with Bolsonaro's bandwagon. And the upper echelons of the military in particular are like, nope, 
no thank you, we don't want to be part of this game that you're trying to play. Which is really an extraordinary moment in Brazilian politics. The military is not perfect, and if we had another hour, we could talk about its problems. But at this moment in Brazilian history, the military is acting as it's acting as a gatekeeper or a stopgap um, that's helping right now to prevent the autocratization of Brazil. Amy, Erica, it was great fun to chat with you again. Thanks so much for coming on my show. Thank you so much, Dan. I really enjoyed it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please spread the news among your friends and share it on social media. The Twitter handle for this podcast is Global Dev Pod. Thank you for listening to In Pursuit of Development with Professor Dan Bannock from the University of Oslo Center for Development and the Environment. Please email your questions, comments, and suggestions to inpursuitofdevelopment at gmail.com.